Let's get this show on the road. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom. This is fear. We are not the government. The government is not us. This is the Welcome, welcome, welcome to Dino Files number 50. Ostensibly number 50. The the numbering's a little loose. <laughs> there have been specials and I used to do a shorter show, but this is number 50. This is the official Dino Files number 50. I'm happy. Finally hit 50. Um, That last special that I dropped was the second part of the free expression specials that I've been doing. Uh, originally it was only meant to be those two parts, but I've been reading other books. <laughs> so the likelihood that there's going to be a third part of that is very high. Probably not too soon. I, I need to plan it out, listen to, you know, the books twice, and then make clips out of the books and things like that. But there's probably going to be another, another part to that. Because things are not getting better. <laughs> it's only getting scarier for those of us who value free expression. So I know originally this podcast wasn't like about that necessarily, and it's still not all about that. But to be honest with you, the politics of anarchism, which I've talked about quite a bit, you can't talk about it unless you're free to talk about it. So my my primary concern is ensuring that those things can be talked about. Because it seems like that's going away. It seems like the value on free expression and on liberal inquiry is going away. If you remember those books, they were uh, The Kindly Inquisitors was the last one. The one before that was So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Uh, the next one, I might do... Um, I might do Hate. But I'm not sure. There's a lot of books on this topic. The only problem is some of them tend to be uh, very Republican. <laughs> and uh, not a huge fan of that. But we'll find a way. Our first thing that we're going to be talking about today, I, I do have interesting legislation, but not in the normal way that I do it. That's going to be mentioned later on in the show. It's not uh, legislation per se. It's legislation that people are lobbying for. So I'm going to end up looking at that later on in the show. But first, we have an interesting article. Our interesting article, of course, from Quillet, as they all seem to be, because this is one of the only only places on the internet that I can actually find people discussing things freely. <laughs> uh, it's one of the only places where people who have uh, unpopular opinions get a voice. Here we have on October 25th, written by Bettina Arndt, A-R-N-D-T, challenging the campus rape narrative. First couple of uh, paragraphs. What do senior university administrators chat about when they attend overseas conferences with others of their kind? 
Surely when vice chancellors hobnob with American college presidents, the conversation must sometimes stray to their troubles, particularly the costly business of managing the so-called campus rape crisis. So how come these smart leaders from the Australian higher education sector haven't twigged to the, haven't twigged to the dangers ahead? That's a piece of slang I'm not aware of. Ripples from the fallout of the campus rape frenzy on American college campuses have traveled across the world. Back in the 1990s, there were campus protests with furious young women brandishing placards claiming one of in four students are raped. The alarmist 2015 propaganda movie The Hunting Ground was screened across the country showing serial rapists preying on college women. By 2011, the activists had achieved their main goal with Obama requiring all publicly funded universities to step up tribunals for determining sexual assault cases. One of the worst decisions ever made. Totally undercut any idea of due process on campus. This is one of the things that they talk about in uh, in the Kindly Inquisitors, but also in other other recent, more recent works, because it was the Obama administration. They they talk about the fact that Thaddeus Russell talks about this a lot about the fact that when the Obama uh, Department of Education during the Obama administration caused. What they caused when they when they came down with this thing was that the students who are accused are pretty much already guilty. There's no there's no recourse for cross examination for actually seeing the evidence against you because it's not treated as a criminal thing. It's a it's a tribunal. It's an inquisition, and that's one of the one of the things that Thaddeus Russell talks about a lot. I've been listening to a lot of Thaddeus Russell over the last uh, week week or week and a half, and it is man. It's crazy. But that is that article. This is an article about the campus rape narrative. Uh, they mention statistics. They mention how the statistics have been... Um, let's just say the statistics have been manipulated. <laughs> and they talk about that quite a bit. I definitely recommend you go read that article. And let's move on to our news. From FIRE, the FIRE.org, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Research casts more doubt on the assumption that hate speech causes violence. This is something I've been waiting on. Uh, it kind of follows the same logic as like video games causing violence. It's like, of course they don't. Of course they don't directly cause violence. People who are predisposed to violence may find inspiration in them, but you can't make a causal link between video games and violence. And I think hate speech has the same logic. This is by Gordon Danning on October 26th. I am pleased to announce that the Political Science Journal Civil Wars has just published my article, Did Radio L, uh, I'm sorry, RTLM Really Contribute Meaningly to the Rwandan Genocide? Using qualitative information to improve causal causal inference from measures of media availability. The article, which is currently available online, will be published in print in an upcoming issue of the journal. Questions whether, and if so, to what extent, the broadcast of the notorious hate radio station, Radio Television Libre de Mil... Uh, caused listeners to participate in the Rwandan genocide in 1994. The genocide in which an estimated 800,000 to 1 million people were killed and 120,000 persons were subsequently charged with participating took place under conditions which scholars have long recognized are, conductive, are conducive to genocide and other forms of mass violence. It took place during this, a civil war between the rebel army that was largely composed of members of the minority Tutsi ethnic group and the government, which was largely composed of members of the majority Hutu ethnic group. There had been previous incidents of mass violence in the country. In addition, when the country became independent of Belgium in 1962, its leaders established a narrative that, the defi- that defined the nation as being Hutu while defining the Tutsi as interlopers. 
Despite the fact that many of the conditions for genocide were clearly present in Rwanda, many politicians and media observers at the time placed particular blame for the genocide on the content of the broadcast by RTLM. Further on from the story, my article casts some doubt on the findings of the study. I argue that radio reception is not really what the study is trying to analyze. Rather, the study is trying to analyze the effect of radio consumption, and it uses radio reception as a proxy variable, i.e., as a way to indirectly estimate radio consumption. However, it is impossible to know how well radio reception represents radio consumption without deep knowledge of radio listening habits in the area. For example, if people are in the habit of gathering in places that have radio reception, most of the people in the village might listen to the radio, even if the radio signal reaches a small part of the village. Indeed, one study relates to the story of a militia member who used to spend mornings on the roof of his shop with a radio clutched to his ear, listening to RTLM, and who would subsequently climb down and gather people to tell them what he'd heard. If the militia member had to stand on the roof, radio reception was likely poor in that area, yet radio consumption by him and his audience was much higher than indicated by measures of radio reception. What they're digging into is, how do you measure, and can you create a causal link between rhetoric and violence? And especially what, what some would call hate speech and violence. It's very interesting. I recommend you read it. The technique is relatively straightforward. Step one is to see how well a model that includes all the variables used in the original research, such as radio reception, poverty levels, education levels, etc., predicts the amount of violence in a particular area. Step two is to repeat that process using a model with all the original variables except radio reception. If the second model does worse at predicting violence than the first model did, the radio reception must be very important. On the other hand, if the second model does just as well as the first model did, then radio reception does not help the model to predict violence, and therefore radio reception is unlikely to cause violence. My results found that there was almost no difference between the predictive ability of the model with radio reception and the model without radio, uh, radio reception. So the point that he's making is that you talk about these people who were... You, you try to create this causal link between hate speech, in scare quotes, and ethnic violence based on who has access to the radio and this one specific channel on the radio, which in an area like this, there's not that many, right? So you can, you can probably assume that if someone's listening to talk radio, they're listening to that. And, if, and what he finds is that, no, it doesn't matter if you listen to the radio or not. So it kind of undermines this idea that hate speech is a direct causal link to violence, or at least the propagation of hate speech. Again, in, square, in scare quotes. This makes me laugh. Now, Notre Dame is an interesting institution. Uh, they're not a public institution. They're, I believe they are a religious institution. Yeah, they are. On October 26th, from fire again, Notre Dame students demand porn filters for campus internet, citing red light policy. <laughs> Earlier this week, a student group at the University of Notre Dame released a petition with over a thousand student faculty and staff signatures asking for the university to implement a web filter to block pornography from university Wi-Fi. The president of the group of students uh, for child-oriented policy released the petition on Tuesday along with a letter signed by dozens of students as the men of Notre Dame, <laughs> arguing that this filter would send the unequivocal message that pornography is an affront to human rights and catastrophic to individuals and relationships. <laughs> the puritanism of the 90s never died. <laughs> the late 80s and early 90s, the, the satanic panic, all this puritanism, it never died. It's still alive and well. And it's alive and well in, in, honestly, it looks like feminism now. All these feminists who hate prostitution and pornography. That's just puritanism. <laughs> that's all it is. The next day, the vice president of SCOP published a response signed by dozens of students as the women of Notre Dame in support of the request. 
That response offered that the filter should, respect, should restrict the top 25 pornographic sites. The top 25 sites are not listed, so it's impossible to know the group's criteria or what innocuous content might be caught in the filter's dragnet. All of Reddit, they're going to have to block. Um, while this might sound like a quibbling distinction to make, some of the most trafficked mainstream sites, such as Reddit and Tumblr, they, they, they mentioned it, uh, allow pornography. The definitional criteria and implementation of a filter dramatically impact how burdensome and censorous the filter policy could be. The proposed filter would enforce a Notre Dame policy that earns the university its red light rating from fire. The responsible use of information technologies at Notre Dame policy reads in relevant part, quote, never use university resources to post, view, print, store, or send obscene, pornographic, sexually explicit, or offensive material except for officially approved, legitimate, academic, or university purposes. Yeah. Um, God, I, I Puritanism around sexuality is part of what has led to all of these arguments. And I've made this argument before that, that Puritanism is at the root of things like Me Too and all the problems with that. Cryptic Cynic in the chat says, I remember a story while, uh, a while back about Notre Dame women coming out with a statement against birth control. That wouldn't surprise me. Is Notre Dame a Catholic institution? I think it is. I'm 90% sure Notre Dame's Catholic. If it were Protestant, that, uh, that wouldn't be something they would say. I don't think, anyway. Um, I'm 90% sure that Notre Dame is a Catholic institution. Yes, Cryptic Cynic says, yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of exactly uh, sort of in line with kind of what you would expect from a Catholic institution. The difference is that a university, like, this is an argument that's been made, and, and again, I've been listening to a lot of Thaddeus Russell, and he actually doesn't buy it, that universities are supposed to be places where the free exchange of ideas and freedom are valued. and. Thaddeus Russell, who works in, or has worked in universities, Ivy League universities for years, it says, no, no, that's not, the, that's, that's never been their mission. They've never believed in that, um, which I, I think is probably true. But regardless, this is, this is one of those situations where you have a university. The reason that FIRE still rates private universities, even though their biggest concern is public universities that infringe on the First Amendment, the reason that they still rate private universities is that the conception is that universities are supposed to value free expression and the free exchange of ideas. And even though these religious universities are private universities and they don't have to, they still should. That's the idea. And it's almost like, well, it's kind of like my argument with regard to social media. They don't have to value free expression. I mean, their, their right to free association tells you that they, they are allowed to censor if they wish. But they shouldn't. That's the argument. Um, that's why I'm against laws like the one that we're going to talk about later in the show. But what, what, it's, it, this kind of puritanism interests me a lot. Because as a kid, I think it's because as a kid, I was always pretty liberal. It's like, not like politically. <laughs> Cryptic Cynics says, how did they know that porn wasn't already blocked? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, how would you know that? <laughs> oh, man. This kind of Puritanism, what bothers me about it was, uh, even, even as a kid, I was pretty liberal about shit on, online. I mean, of course, I, I found porn at a young age online, but that's not really the point. The point is, at one point, when I, especially when I was more religious, but, but it doesn't really have anything to do with that necessarily, I was kind of against like porn. I was in, if you guys remember the battle cry organization, that was like a Christian evangelical thing 
that I was like down for. And these were people who said that like violent video games make violence, that that porn tears apart families and is harmful to the psyche, that like this was one of those organizations. And I was like totally down for it. <laughs> and it wasn't until later on, it wasn't until later on that I started actually reading about um and and frankly that I started valuing the rights of others. But it also wasn't until later on that I started reading about like the the understanding that porn has existed forever, that prostitution has existed forever, that prostitution and porn are primary drivers of technology and deciders of technological fights, that that these kinds of institutions, and they are an institution, prostitution is an institution, pornography is an institution, that these institutions are incredibly important in human history and also American history, and that they are not only important, but they are useful. And then outside of that, later on, realizing that, oh, if, uh, I mean, what's the difference between a person breaking their back in a factory for 40 years, you know, just to retire, or 50 years, just to retire later on and maybe get a watch? Like, what's the difference between that, someone sacrificing their body for their, for their job, whatever that job may be, it doesn't have to be breaking your back in a factory. It can be sitting at a keyboard all day long. Like that's, that's still sacrificing your body. That's still putting in effort. And there are still things that can happen to you that are negative based upon any work. So how is it any different? How is prostitution and pornography any different from breaking your back in a factory or sitting at a keyboard for eight hours a day? I don't believe they are. And it took me a while to get there. I did eventually. And then I still, I found that battle cry book actually when I was in, uh, I think I was a senior in high school and I was going through old books that I had, um, get like digging through the stacks of old books that I had. And, and I found that battle cry book in there and I was like, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> like, why, why was I, why did I believe this and what did it speak to? And ultimately what it spoke to for me, and this is one of the reasons that this kind of puritanism fascinates me because for me, what it spoke to was guilt and fear. For me, what it spoke to was the idea that you should feel bad for having fun. You should feel bad, like, because video games are fun, right? That's why we play them. We should feel bad for having fun. Porn and sex are fun. That's why we are involved in them. That's why we do them. That's why we, we watch porn, or some people think it's incredibly fun to make porn. Good for them, right? It's, it's just anti-fun, <laughs> and, it, and it really, really bothered me. Outside of being uh, outside of not respecting somebody's self-ownership and their dominion over their own body and their, their right to decide what they should do with that body, as in prostitution and pornography or whatever, outside of it not respecting that, it's just anti-fun. Don't be ashamed because you went out and got your little ass. Look out. Ass is good. Right. Yeah, ass is good. I dig it. Now, I talked last time about... I, I, uh, last time, I think, I think it was last time. I actually, I'm not sure anymore. It was either two shows ago or last show. I talked about Facebook pulling down all these pages, all these pages of anti-war and police accountability, uh, organizations. And there were other organizations in there too, but, but the ones that I was really concerned about were the anti-war and police accountability pages, things like cop block, things like, I think anti-war, things like, uh, free thought project. They all got pulled down. and. The fifth column frames this in an interesting way. Uh, I read two articles uh, that framed it differently, 
right? I read one from Reason, and I read one from, I believe, uh, LA Times. This one has a different sort of frame to it, and I want to read this article real quick. It's not that long. October 15th from the fifth column. Facebook medals in 2018 midterm elections. United States from Garrison. On October 11th, Facebook announced the removal of 559 pages and 251 accounts from its service, accusing the account holders of spam and coordinated inauthentic behavior. Coordinated inauthentic behavior. What a fucking... That, that still sends chills down my spine when I read that. What a perfectly... What, what, a, what a perfectly squishy thing that you can just manipulate to cover whatever it is you don't like. The purge users stand accused. Uh, the purged users stand accused of posting massive amounts of content to drive traffic to their websites, like everybody with a website does on social media. With suspicious quote timing ahead of U.S. midterm elections, suspicious timing ahead of U.S. midterm elections. Maybe like pulling these pages down. Maybe like bombs in October, a shooting in October, a fucking migrant caravan in October. That's all suspiciously before the midterm elections, but nobody wants to talk about that shit. Facebook admits two legitimate reasons for such behavior. Quote, it's the bedrock of fundraising campaigns and grassroots organizations, not to mention the operations of CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and a bunch of other users slash pages which weren't purged. Facebook also admits that it has previously, quote, enforced this policy against many pages, groups, and accounts created to stir up political debate. In other words, Facebook's administrators are meddling in politics, including the 2018 U.S. midterm elections in the name of preventing meddling in politics. Who benefits from the meddling? It doesn't seem to follow along left-right lines in particular. The victims come from across the political spectrum. From Reverb Press on the left to right-wing news on the right and the Libertarian Free Thought Project, some with millions of Facebook followers. The primary thread connecting the victims of the purge seems to be that they are critics and or opponents of the American political mainstream or establishment. In a sense, this is nothing new. Even before internet social media, the old guard mainstream media tended to draw fairly narrow lines on either side of the perceived political center or consensus and avoid coloring or publishing, e.g. reading letters that colored, very far outside those lines. One might support or oppose a tax increase or even a particular tax, but opposing taxation in general, why that was just crazy and not worthy of consideration or of column inches. The internet and social media threatened to change that. In fact, they did change that, for a little while at any rate. But now Facebook, Twitter, et al. are part of the establishment and are starting to act like it. How can we fight that trend? Some would have us classify social media as public utilities or something of the sort to regulate them as such. But who would regulate them? The very establishment in question. On the other hand, it's becoming clear that these companies are already looking more and more like extensions of the state and the establishment the state serves than like bona fide private sector actors. What is to be done? From where I sit, the only real option is to see if the next generation of social media sites and services like Diaspora, Mastodon, Minds, WeGab, et al. can supersede Facebook and Twitter in the same way that Facebook and Twitter superseded print and television news and the more centralized slash static site model of the older internet. Cryptic Cynic in the chat says, I used to hang out with some members of the Revolutionary Communist Party that believe sex work is worse than other labor because they are selling their bodies. Right, and that's the... That's one of the interesting things about that in particular is that they think they have this Puritan connection between the body and the soul. It's like, and rather than understanding that selling your body, it's the same thing either way. Either you're farming, you're, you're farming and breaking your back farming in the, in the communist utopia, you're breaking your back farming so that you can take part in the other aspects of that society, right? It's the same thing. 
in a, in a, in a capitalist culture, you're breaking your back farming so that you can have money so that you can go do other things. It's the exact same, but the difference is one is sex and one isn't. They have this, it's the Puritanism in communism is something that's really interesting that needs to be dug into by someone because it's, it's part of actually Thaddeus Russell's, uh, renegade history of the United States. He talks about how communists and communist unions had this like Puritan work ethic and this Puritan, uh, hatred of sex and porn and fun. It's very interesting. But that kind of Puritanism, like I said before, I, I, I think there is a causal link between that kind of Puritanism and things like Me Too. I think there's a causal link between that kind of Puritanism and the fact that we cannot have honest conversations about human sexuality in culture. Everything has to be about like affirmative consent, affirmative consent, which is fine. If you want to live your life that way, cool. That's good. But there are all kinds of sexual situations among adults that may not conform to such a strict definition of consent. <laughs> I mean, if you want to be realistic about it, if you want to be honest about it, that's my big problem is that Puritanism undercuts honesty in a big, big way. But in any case, just like this on this on this uh, on this fifth column thing here. We want to talk about honesty. We want to talk about just like Facebook is like, we don't want anybody to meddle in politics. So we're going to meddle in the political discourse. So what the fuck? Why this, this it's not only is it dishonest, it's inconsistent, which is maybe not worse, but almost as bad. And this is the kind of thing that I've been talking about forever now is they talk about diaspora, Mastodon, Minds, we, uh, me, we, et cetera. And while those are fine alternatives, to these kinds of centralized and controlled public squares. They're not alternatives to the system. And we're going to see that with Gab here in a minute. They're not alternatives to this centralized system we call the internet. That needs a revolution. That needs a radical change. And it's coming. There's a lot of people who are very focused on decentralization and encryption. Some of them are, uh, are crypto anarchists, people who want to use cryptography to undermine government control, which fucking go for it, crypto anarchists. I love you. <laughs> and there are other people who are just privacy advocates. And there are other people who are speech advocates. And all they want to do is establish a decentralized network that they can use then to protect free expression, as they should. <laughs> Max, why don't you want to get the verified sexual partner app? You some kind of pervert. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's the that's one of those things that that kind of affirmative consent. Like we used to make fun. I remember just a few years ago, we would make fun of the idea of like having a contract that was like in, like you had a few copies in your bedside and you would like have them sign in this contract at different periods of the night. <laughs> but that seems to be the reality. <laughs> that seems to be what people are after. There are apps for that. It's insanity. That's it's it makes it hard to have fun because I'll be totally honest with you. I'll be because again, honesty is puritanism undercuts honesty and honesty ends puritanism. I'm going to be honest with you. There are sexual situations that you find yourself in with a trusted partner that from any outside observer who's not aware of the context surrounding that situation, they'd be freaked out. <laughs> I mean, it's just true. And any, any rational adult who has had rational adult sex will tell you that. It's just fascinating to me. It's, it is, it's, it's just fascinating to me that people 
it's fascinating to me that the cultural puritanism that was pushed during like the satanic panic and all this other stuff. It's fascinating to me that that hasn't died yet because there's a lot of people I would, I would venture to say most people look back at that satanic panic and say that was dumb. There were innocent people who were jailed because kids were told by cops that they should make statements, certain statements. The West Memphis fucking three happened because of the satanic panic. So yeah, I, I under, I understand the kind of the religious puritanism side of it, but culturally we should be aware that this is bullshit by now, right? It just doesn't make any sense to me. But I guess when it's so ingrained in the culture of the United States, I guess it's old habits. But still, it fascinates me and scares me a little bit. Okay, I didn't want to talk about this too much, and I won't, but it ties into sort of the... It ties into one of the topics that we're going to have later. And that's, I think, why it has to be talked about just a little bit. I don't want to go off on a fucking tangent with this thing. But... This synagogue shooter. Okay, we had the MAGA bomber, right? Which it seems may have been an accurate description of him. I'm still not sure because I still haven't seen any news about whether the FBI uh, actually spoke to this guy. And I haven't seen any news about whether the FBI spoke to the synagogue shooter either. Um, But a lot of domestic terror attacks tend to come back to FBI involvement. There's... 90% of it, basically. Uh, There's a TED Talk about it. I'll link it in the description or in the show notes. Or maybe I'll just throw it up on Twitter. But uh, there is a a TED Talk about it where this this dude basically went went through all of these court records and basically found that 90% of the terror attacks in the United States post 9-11 were caused by the FBI basically having an informant who goes to a guy that they think might be a good target and says, hey, uh, you seem unstable and desperate. You want to do terror <laughs> and they convince them and they, they give them the means um, and the opportunity to be terrorists and they go out there and they decide to be terrorists. Cryptic cynic says, I feel like there's a new satanic panic room. There is. And it's one of the interesting things. One of the interesting things about that particularly is that it's interesting, the religious aspect of it, because I forgot this guy's name, John, John, Josh, something. He was one of the guys that did the, uh, that did that, um, basically an audit of the grievance studies, uh, the grievance studies journals where they wrote bullshit and the grievance studies journals published. Um, one of the things that he says in the video about that is that especially on the left, this kind of idea of social justice seems to be, it's a religious structure where original sin is privilege. And the more privilege you have, the more original sin you have. Like, you should feel bad for existing in a certain way. Um, We hear about it a lot with white men, but there have been articles, I've talked about it before, like I saw an article on the, I believe it was on The Root, that was going around a while back, that was, black straight men are the white straight men of black people. Right? So this kind of intersectional social justice philosophy builds a system in which If you have certain traits, you have more sin innately. It is a very religious system. If you have, if you are male, you automatically have more sin than someone who is not male. If you are straight, you automatically have more sin than someone who is not straight. And if you are white, you automatically have more sin than someone who is not white. 
So it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing. And, and it's interesting how people like TERFs kind of fit into that, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. It's interesting how they kind of fit into that stack too. Um, but intersectionalism is, I've said it before and I'll say it again, intersectionalism, this intersectional social justice theory that is this kind of new religion, is, um, is sociopathic. What it does is it basically says that you are deserving of X amount of empathy based on these traits that you have. Rather than simply saying, I'm going to have empathy for you as a human because I also am a human. It says, my empathy for you is limited by your privilege. That is sociopathic as fuck. And that's one of the things that really, really bothers me. But anyway, we have this, we have these uh, recent terror attacks. And again, we don't, I don't know personally whether or not the FBI was in charge of them. I suspect they may have been to a certain extent in one or both, but I don't know. Honestly, the synagogue one seems a little bit more natural. And the synagogue one seems a little bit more natural because there's something nobody's talking about. And I am shocked that Slate ran this story. This is from Slate, October 27th. Synagogue shooting suspect Robert Bowers appears to be anti-Semite who hates Trump. The suspect who allegedly shouted all Jews must die before opening fire at a Pittsburgh synagogue and killing at least eight people has been identified by several outlets, including local CBS affiliate KDKA as Robert Bowers. Bowers appears to have been an active user of social media where he often posted anti-Semitic rants uh, and put forward his theories about President Donald Trump being controlled by the Jews. The reports differ on his age, with some saying Bowers is 46 and others say he's 48. Bowers appears to have been particularly active on Gab, which has been described as the alt-right social network that is home to lots of racists. Uh, we're going to address that later. According to posts that were screen grabs before his account, at one dingo, was wiped, Producer and director Robbie Starbuck managed to grab some of his posts and post it at Archive Online. This monster is an unhinged anti-Semitic terrorist, wrote Starbuck. Shortly before the shooting, Bowers wrote on Gab, H-I-A-S likes to bring invaders that kill our people. I can't stand by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics, I'm going in. H-I-A-S refers to the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which supports refugees. He may have been referring to the caravan of migrants making their way from Central America to the United States, which he apparently saw as part of a broader Jewish conspiracy. His posts and reposts repeatedly mentioned Jews supporting refugees as part of some nefarious plot. In other posts, Bowers made his hatred of Trump clear. Trump is a globalist, not a nationalist, he wrote two days ago. There is no hashtag MAGA as long as there's a kike infestation. At another point, Bowers reposted a message that suggested Trump was under the control of Jews who are out to destroy Western civilization. So... The situation here, I want you to be aware of this for one, for, well, for a lot of reasons, but for the main reason that I want you to be aware of this socially being, look at how many people, the mainstream media included, are talking about how this kind of attack, this attack right here, this specific synagogue shooting is because of President Trump. Now, the MAGA bomber, they blamed on Trump because the dude was a Trump supporter, which, okay. I mean, all right, that's, I mean, you can, you, you, I don't agree that you can just blame a dude for something that somebody who likes him did, but regardless, I mean, I mean, here, if, if, if that's the case, then Karl Marx is directly responsible for all of it. He's not just a political philosopher. He's directly responsible for all of the dead from communism. I don't think you can make that claim. I think you have to say Karl Marx was a political philosopher and the people that killed people killed people. 
So it's, it's the same situation here. You can't blame a politician for the actions of somebody who likes them. You just can't do it. It doesn't make any fucking sense. If anybody who listens to this show went out and decided to drop a Molotov cocktail on a cop car because they want to be an anarchist too, fine. But I didn't do it. You did it. I'm not taking responsibility for it. I don't think you should Molotov cocktail cop cars, even though I think it's probably ethically okay. I don't think you should do it because it's a bad idea. This is the issue. Is I, I, as someone who puts opinions out there, if somebody who likes those opinions goes and does a thing, that's their decision, not mine. And I think the same respect has to be given to people like Karl Marx and people like Donald Trump. There's people who say things. What the people who follow them do is their responsibility and their responsibility alone. In fact, I think it's probably, I think it's probably irresponsible to mitigate the responsibility of the people who actually did the thing wrong by giving responsibility to somebody who, was, who had nothing to do with it. Regardless. This, uh, I, I want you to remember because everybody's talking about how this was Trump's fault. And again, with the MAGA bomber, because he was a fan of Donald Trump, they said it was his fault. That's a better argument, still not a good one. But with this one, the argument that they're making is that things have been so divisive and Trump has said so many anti-Semitic things, which he hasn't. And all of this, it's, it's, it's about the division that Trump is the direct cause of that led to this, to this shooting. It's, the, it's because Trump has empowered Nazis. But as we can see here, Nazis don't like Trump. And I actually know for a fact that that's true. Nazis are not huge fans of Trump. Some white, some white nationalists are. And some white separatists can be. but. Real ethno-purist Nazis don't like Trump. (laughs) They think what this guy thinks, which is that Trump is controlled by Jews. So that's, that's, but one of the things that you're going to be seeing all over Twitter is how this is because of Donald Trump. And this dude hated Donald Trump. The MAGA bomber, you can make a better argument, even though I'm still not convinced that that thing's on the up and up. The MAGA bomber, you can make a better argument. This, you got nothing. You're trying to blame it on Trump. You got nothing. I'm not white knighting for Trump. My problem is with the media. These people don't, these people wouldn't know honesty if it bit them in the ass. But of course, things have already come down the pipe because of this. Almost instantaneously, let's go ahead and look at this timeline here. I'm going to go to Gab's Twitter account. Now, this dude was a Gab user. Uh, he was a big, big Gab user, actually. He, he used it quite a bit. And I'm going to scroll down to where Gab... I had this pulled up. I don't know why it got closed. Okay, so Gab effectively was jetted by their, uh, by their host. I'm trying to find the name of said host. There's a list. Joylent is their host. Their host basically said, you've got till Monday and we're, we're, you're, we're kicking you. You're gone. You don't get to host with us anymore. Gab's domain. Now, this, is, this happened today. Gab's domain was kicked by GoDaddy. GoDaddy says, you got to find a new domain, domain provider by tomorrow. You're gone. Stripe and PayPal both removed Gab's ability to accept payments. And Google Play and, Apple, uh, Google Play and the App Store banned Gab's app a long time ago. So Gab, as a, as a social media site, has basically been shut down. And it's possible they could get it started back up again with another host and with another domain provider, but I don't know who's going to take them. And even if they do keep finding new hosts, and even if they do keep finding new domain providers, now you're going to have to deal with, well, what if the ISPs decide that you shouldn't be used? And the ISPs block that traffic. Or what if the people who make the browsers decide, 
that people shouldn't be using Gab. And so the browsers stop, start blocking that traffic. This is the thing that nobody really understands about the internet, or the very few people understand about the internet. This is more complex than anyone wants to admit. DNS providers, hosts, DDoS protection providers, people like Cloudflare, uh, domain providers, hosting providers, payment providers, uh, and then you go all the way down to the backbone of the internet, the four companies that own the internet. You talk about the ISPs, you talk about the, do- you talk about the browsers, you talk about the fucking operating systems, you talk about the electric company that has to serve your data center or your offices or whatever. People don't understand how dependent the internet is upon the whims of others. And if for somebody like me, it's even more dependent because I don't have servers. I can't even hire a host. I don't have that kind of money. So I had to make my website on someone else's platform, which I hope to be able to change in the, in the near to mid future. But as it stands, if they want to be gone, I'm gone. This is the problem with the internet is we have this centralized system now where just a few companies control every step on the ladder. And if any one of them, or, you know, <laughs> God forbid, a bunch of them, as what happened with Gab, decide to decide you don't get that step, you can't be on the ladder. So this whole idea, I mentioned that specifically because this whole idea of build your own is a horseshit idea. And that's why censors love it. Because they know somewhere in their head, probably, that it's not possible to just start your own social media site. <laughs> Right. It's not the, the way that things are established right now. It's you just can't really do it. Not without money like you couldn't imagine. So the build your own thing is bullshit by and large. And that's why that's why they say it, because it sounds good. But it's it is uh, let's call it intellectually dishonest. So Gab is basically being kicked off the Internet in much the same way that Alex Jones was. And the people who are responding to things, the, the, one, of the, one of the arguments that I've seen, I'm, it's not even really arguments, it's just people who are in there just going, good, bye, get out of here, fuck off. Like, it's, okay, fine, but do you think it's just going to be them forever? What happens when people you don't like are in control of the social consciousness? What happens when you're the target? It's like they forgot McCarthyism ever happened. You know, a lot of these people on the left, there's a lot of these people on the left who have socialist or communist tendencies. And they forget that McCarthyism was a fucking thing. At one time, they would have been blackballed for having their political opinions. And you can't, I don't, I don't understand the logic of thinking that that's never going to happen again. And then jumping in and saying that it should happen to others. It's ignorance. It's pure, pure ignorance. Before we move on, before we move on to the thing that really, really bothers me, I want to do the credits. So let's do those credits. Credits will do fun. It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. Who do you trust? I'll tell you who I trust. I trust Mr. Max Ogburn. Mr. Max Ogburn has been a uh, supporter of the show for a long time, even through when I've done, uh, even when I've had to go on hiatus for relatively extended periods of time. And one of the main reasons that that I made those specials because I wanted something extra to drop and we'll probably be making more. Uh, so thank you so much, Mr. Max Ogburn. You are a God amongst men. Uh, 
All right. I was a little late on that because I got into the discussion about the about the Internet and about the new religion. But the main topic here that I want to talk about, the thing that really has me concerned is the number of people who take this information, this information that, okay, the the establishment that runs the Internet, the centralized system that we call the Internet. They don't want Max in the chat. Absolutely, man. You bring a great show. Thank you so much, sir, for being there. Uh, you're you're a hero. Um, they take this information and they decide that they want the state to jump in and change it. They say that they want the state to basically legislate free expression on these websites. And I understand the argument. These websites are the new public square. The old public square is dead. These websites are the new public square and they're privately owned. And as such, they have a responsibility to behave as a public square and a liberal society does or should. I totally understand the argument. The problem is that these websites being private organizations, being privately owned, they have a right to free association. They get, they get to choose whether they want something on their servers. That's their right. They own the fucking servers. Max says, Utopia by any means necessary from the statists. That's true. Utopia by any means necessary. And giving that kind of control, the only way they could do it is through the FCC, which is what they want. And giving that kind of control to the government over what you are allowed to take down from the internet is just as bad as like the precedent set by Sesta and Fosta which gives the government control of whether or not these organizations are liable for what's put up on their, on their sites by their users. This is the biggest push that's happening right now for this kind of legislation that I've seen is coming from an organization who wants it's the Smith Institute for Public Law Research, and they want a, an, a law called the Social Media Anti-Censorship, Anti-Censorship Act, or SMACA. And I'm just going to read what they have to say about it. The Social Media Anti-Censorship Act would prohibit censorship of lawful speech on major social media platforms. For purposes of this legislation, censorship includes bullet, denial of platform access and normal use thereof, e.g. lockouts, suspensions, and bans. Next point, shadow banning. The next point is issuance, issuance of verified status based on any factors unrelated to identity authentication. Next is throttling accounts and or content without disclosure. Next is embargoing content, i.e. no memory holding content without the consent of the creator. Next is manipulating trending algorithms without disclosure. Next is demonetization, i.e. content-based monetization decisions. Lawful speech is based upon the standards enshrined in the U.S. Constitution with the following limitations. First point, no child pornography. Next, no explicit credible threats of physical force. Next, platforms may choose to prohibit publishing any individual's non-public residential address, telephone number, or email address without their consent. Next, platforms may choose to prohibit otherwise lawful pornographic video and or images, i.e. content containing explicit sexual acts. Next, restrictions on copyrighted content are already addressed by the DMCA, which is a broken piece of legislation that absolutely needs to be trashed. Next, platforms may choose to prohibit spam on a content-neutral basis, e.g. based on frequency, similarity of posts, or other content-neutral methodologies. This content neutrality limitation will not apply to spam that advertises lawful or unlawful pornographic video and or images, i.e. content containing explicit sexual acts. 
Major social media platforms means social media platforms with a minimum of 200 million monthly active users at present. It would include Facebook, including Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Smaller platforms and message boards will not be affected. Messaging services, e.g. WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, will not be affected. The legislation would impose company fines of $500,000 per instance of wrongful censorship and would be enforced by the FCC. Judicial remedies, both monetary and non-monetary, may also be available to aggrieved parties. So they want this piece of legislation, the SMACA, which effectively gives control over content decisions to the FCC. Bake the fucking cake, Facebook, is what they're saying. Bake the fucking cake, YouTube. That's what they're saying. They are undercutting these companies, these companies and their shareholders, right to free association by commanding them to host content they may disagree with. My argument about this is that the answer is not giving control of content to the FCC. That's what net neutrality would have done, and that's why I was against net neutrality. And that's what this would do, and that's why I'm against this. The answer is not giving control of the internet to the FCC. The answer is to develop a social expectation. The answer is to argue that the population must respect liberal inquiry, free expression, and the marketplace of ideas to argue that they must, in fact, do that in order to maintain the sort of, um, the sort of social lifestyle, right? In order to maintain the lifestyle of what some would call the West, right? This, this must be upheld. Free expression of ideas, the marketplace of ideas, liberal inquiry are the things which created the societies that we have today. All of the good things about those societies. That's what science is. And it's things like the destruction of free expression. It's things like censorship, whether public or private, that hurt that path forward. They actively hinder it. And I would say the government actively hinders it as well. I was having this thought earlier. And this is something that I might be totally wrong about because I've only been kind of mulling it over for the last few days. But I was thinking about, um, I was thinking about the abortion issue. And look, as a person, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted on abortion. Um, mainly because I don't think anybody has a good argument for what a human life is. And so for me, with self-ownership being the basis of what I believe to be the rights of people, if a fetus is a human life, then it has all the rights that a person should have. If it's not, then it doesn't. I still have yet to see an effective argument one way or the other on that. And you can say what you want about the self-ownership of the, of the person who is gestating this, this child, sure. But that's not the issue anybody argues about. And to me, it's not the, it's not the paramount issue. For me, the paramount issue, if you're going to make this kind of decision, is to what, 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 what rights does that thing have? Some say none, some say all. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know if either of those is the case. I have yet to hear a good argument one way or the other. Outside of her body, her choice, which is true. But that's only if you think that that thing doesn't have a body of its own. If you, if you, if you do not believe that self-ownership is applied to that thing. I don't know. I really don't know. And no judgment either way. I'm not, in my personal life, I'm not anti-abortion. But I really just don't know. But I was having this thought earlier about the marketplace of ideas and about free expression, and about these kinds of arguments. I think it's true that government 
as an organization hinders those discussions actively. I think if people were more concerned about answering that question instead of getting their legislation passed or getting their judge on the fucking Supreme Court so they can make the decision that they think is right about abortion, if people were more concerned about answering the actual question upon which the abortion discussion should rest, does this thing have rights? If people were more concerned about answering that question rather than the politics of that question, it probably would have been answered by now. I think the existence of government actively hinders the marketplace of ideas. And I think giving the FCC control of that marketplace is the worst thing you could possibly do. I think we need to have a social expectation of discourse. We need to have a social expectation of free expression. Because if we have this social expectation, then it follows that the organizations who depend on the public, Facebook's nothing without users, it would follow then that they would also respect because they would be held to account. They would also have to respect liberal inquiry. Because if your population respected liberal inquiry, Facebook wouldn't be able to get away with anything. This kind of censorship would not be okay. Facebook's stock price would fall when they decided to do this kind of censorship. But we don't. As it stands, we do not have that social expectation. As it stands, we're still arguing about whether we should have hate speech laws, when the answer is obviously no. Because we can see it in other countries. We just saw it. We just saw it in Europe. We just now saw it in Europe. The, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, I'm, I'm not sure what the actual thing is, but it's like C, uh, C-H-R, uh, no, I can't remember what it is, but it's the European Court of Human Rights. It's not part of the EU, it's part of another organization um, that has more, more member states. The, the organizations that the European Human Rights Court is part of is a 48-member state organization. The EU only has 27. Um, they're connected, but not like, they're not the same thing. But they just came down and said that a woman saying that this woman said, (laughs) it blows me away, that Muhammad had pedophilic tendencies. He married a six-year-old. Of course he fucking had pedophilic tendencies. Are you fucking kidding me? Of course he did. But this court on human rights basically said that her right to say that does not trump other people's right to have their religion respected. (laughs) Now look, I'm an atheist. I don't particularly respect religions by and large, but I was religious at one point. And I can tell you that at that point in my life, when I was particularly religious, and somebody said, Jesus was a pedophile, I would have been insulted. I would have been very insulted. However, they have a right to say that. And so for for a court in Europe to say that making statements, factual statements, about Muhammad, you don't have the right to do that because it impedes other people's right to have their religion unharassed. That's not a fucking right. Anyway, you see where this goes. That's what I'm saying. Is you see the path. That's why we need this social expectation. That's why we don't need some fucking law that gives a bunch of criminals in suits control over our over the public square. This is exactly the problem is control of the public square. Why do we want more of it? And why do we want the government to have it? It doesn't make any sense. But it's because people are desperate. People are desperate. People see themselves as being censored. People are afraid of this kind of creeping tyranny. The creeping tyranny of the tech billionaires who don't want to defend democracy so much as they want to defend their partisanship. 
And insofar as they want to talk about, about free expression, they're fine with free expression so long as you're inside of these, these very well, just like that article said, this, these, the establishment lines that have been set, so long as you're inside of those, you can talk. But if you're like me, or any of my friends, nah, you have to shut the fuck up. Shut up, slave. Sit down. Pay your taxes. It's crazy. And it makes me angry, especially with regard to free expression. Because if free expression is the best tool for finding what the closest thing that we can d describe as truth, if, if free expression is the best tool for advancing human knowledge, and it is, then use that tool. Don't turn to violence. Don't hold a gun to somebody's head to enforce your values. Use the tool that you supposedly believe in so fucking much. That really bothers me too. You're abandoning this thing that you want to stand up for. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's like, Bombing for peace, fucking for virginity, and abandoning the free market system to save it. It's all the same logic. That is to say, it's not <laughs> logic at all. In any case, I do want to mention something for everybody, because I'm going to be releasing this on the night of the 28th. There's still time. Uh, if anybody listens to this, like, immediately after I drop it, there's still time. If you live in Southern California... You can make your way to what I think is going to be one of the most interesting debates. Maybe I'll talk about it in a minute because <laughs> Thaddeus Russell might hurt my feelings. <laughs> but um, it's going to be one of the most interesting debates, I think, uh, of, of on this topic and maybe even of this new kind of era. It's uh, the live debate in L.A. Uh, it's on the 1st of November. Ken White of Pope Hat, who I like to read, a lot of really good legal, legal uh, not advice, but um, does really great legal breakdowns of things. Pope Hat has, I think, the best article on why there's no hate speech law in the United States. And Thaddeus Russell of Renegade University, who I love just as a thinker. Social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube should only remove speakers and participants who are making true threats or inciting violence. That is the proposition that they're going to be debating. Uh, Thaddeus Russell is pro, Pope Hat is con, and. I am excited for this. I am really excited for this. It's at Reasons LAHQ. It's part of the Soho Forum, so it's going to be, there's going to be a VOD of it later and things like that. But if you're in SoCal, you can make it to this thing live. Doors open at six. I am, I am, uh, I'm really excited for this. Russell will defend the proposition. White will attack it. Uh, and I believe Nick Gillespie is going to moderate, which I love. Um, and it'll be a thing of beauty. This is our inaugural West Coast Soho Forum, named for the monthly debate series in New York that Reason sponsors. I'm really excited about this. I definitely recommend that you watch the VOD. It, it, um, I can't make it live. I'm going to be watching the VOD. Um, and I'm going to be covering on, on the next episode of the show. That's probably going to be our main topic, is, uh, is this debate, because I am fascinated by it. Now, fair warning. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of Thaddeus Russell, and Thaddeus Russell was talking about this there's a possibility that Thaddeus Russell isn't going to actually debate the issue and that he's going to go off on some postmodernist word games. He might do that because he doesn't like taking things seriously, <laughs> which is okay. That's fine. Um, if he does that, I'll be upset. I think this is a debate that really needs to be had, and I think this is the perfect place to have it. Um, if Thaddeus Russell wants to go off on some postmodernist thing, some word wordplay or whatever that he was talking about doing on his uh, on his podcast. He was thinking maybe he would do that. I wish he wouldn't, but he might. And even if he does, it'll be interesting. That's that's the main part of it that, that I think is going to be cool about it. Because Pope Hat is not like a libertarian. He's not he. 
he's relatively apolitical, but he's not radically for freedom the way that like I or even Thaddeus Russell is. So I definitely recommend that you catch that uh, if you can, if you can't make it live, if you're not in SoCal, like I'm not. Catch the VOD, see if you can catch the stream. If it is streamed, I believe it should be, but the, the VOD will definitely be on their YouTube and on their website. Um, probably be released as a podcast too. Uh, I'm excited for this. This is going to be really good. Please, Thaddeus, play along. <laughs> but um, I think it'll be really, really fun. I'm super excited for this to come out. It's going to be what we're talking about on the next episode of the show. And um, with that said, I want to thank everybody for hanging out. And uh, I'll see you guys next week. Remember, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Dean O Files. You can find the network on Twitter at Alt Net Radio. You can find this and other shows on Alternative Internet Radio, A-I-R-A-D dot I-O. You can find the stuff that I write at The Rogue File, roguefile.com. I want to thank everyone who downloads the show, listens to the show. I want to thank everyone who listens live and hangs out in the chat and keeps me on my toes. I want to thank everybody who donates. Thank you all so much, wonderful producers of Dino Files. If you'd like to be among them, there are many ways to donate. You can find them on the Rogue File or on the Air website. Many different ways to make that happen. We also have a merch store if you'd like something for your money. Thanks so much for listening, and you all have a wonderful week. This show is part of the Alternative Internet Radio Podcast Network. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at AIRAD.io.